way back to their seats this morning. We'll get started. Hopefully everyone has a Bible accessible to them so you can follow along as we read. This morning we're looking at the what is referred to as the third cycle in the book of Judges. And hopefully everyone is familiar with, the, with these, these cycles by now. The people of Israel sin against God. They commit apostasy and idolatry against God. Then God gives them over because of their sin into a ruler of a foreign nation who, who conquers them. Uh, they're made subjects and slaves of their king, and they're, and they're oppressed. And that happens for a period of time. Then um, they, they grow weary of this oppression. They cry out to God, and then God sends them a deliverer through a judge. And last week we heard about Ehud, um, and this week it'll be about different ones. And then after that, God raises up the deliverer and saves them, uh, then they have rest for a period of time. And unfortunately, this cycle starts all over again. And this is the outline of the book of Judges, is these cycles that happen over and over again. And this story is an interesting one, and it's the only one like this in the book of Judges. It's told in two parts. One is in a classic Hebrew narrative style that we're going to look at in chapter 4. And one is in a classic Hebrew poetic style that's in chapter 5. And each one builds upon another. And if you stack them together, you get insights from one that you wouldn't get from the other. And the only other story that's told like this in the Old Testament is in Exodus 14 and 15 that refers to the Exodus and then the song of praise to God that's after that. And there's many other similarities that exist between this story that we're going to talk about today and the Exodus. Some of them will be obvious to you as we read through the story, and some of those things I'll point out as we go through. However, this morning we're going to be limiting our scope to chapter 4 with the story of salvation. And then the next time we're in the book of Judges, we're going to look at Judges 5 and the song of salvation. So if you've got your Bibles, and read along with me um, as I read from Judges 4. So here now the reading of God's word. And the people of Israel again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord after Ehud died. And the Lord sold them into the hand of, the, of Jabin, king of Canaan, who reigned in Hazor. The commander of his army was Sisera, who lived in Hashereth Hagoyim. Then the people of Israel cried out to the Lord for help. For he had 900 chariots of iron, and he oppressed the people of Israel cruelly for 20 years. Now Deborah, a prophetess, the wife of Lepidith, was judging Israel at that time. She used to sit under the palm of Deborah between Ramah and Bethel in the hill country of Ephraim. And the people of Israel came up to her for judgment. She sent and summoned Barak, the son of Abinah, Abinoam from Kephesh Naphtali, and said to him, Has not the Lord, the God of Israel, commanded you? Go, gather your men at Mount Tabor, taking 10,000 10, from the people of Naphtali and the people of Zebulun. And I will draw out Sisera, the general of Jabin's army, to meet you by the river Kishon, with his chariots and his troops, and I will give him into your hand. Barak said to her, If you will go with me, I will go. But if you will not go with me, I will not go. And she said, I will surely go with you. Nevertheless, the road on which you are going will not lead to your glory, for the Lord will sell Sisera into the hand of a woman. Then Deborah arose and went with Barak to Kadesh. And Barak called out Zebulun and Naphtali to Kadesh. And ten thousand men went up at his heels, and Deborah went up with him. Now Heber the Kenite had separated from the Kenites, the descendants of Hobab, the father-in-law of Moses. 
and had pitched his tent as far away as the oak in Zan Amin, which is near Kedesh. When Sisera was told that Barak, the son of Abinoam, had gone to Mount Tabor, Sisera called out all his chariots, 900 chariots of iron, and all the men who were with him, from Harawesh Hagalim to the river Kishon. And Deborah said to Barak, Up, for this day, for this is the day in which the Lord has given Sisera into your hand. Does not the Lord go out before you? So Barak went down from Mount Tabor with 10,000 men following him. And the Lord routed Sisera and all his chariots and all his armory before Barak by the edge of the sword. And Sisera got down from his chariot and fled away on foot. And Barak pursued the chariots and the army to Harakoresh Hagarim. And all the army of Sisera fell by the edge of the sword. Not a man was left. But Sisera fled away on foot to the tent of Jael, the wife of Heber the Kenite. For there was peace between Jabin the king of Hazor and the house of Heber the Kenite. And Jael came out to meet Sisera and said to him, Turn aside, my lord, turn aside to me, do not be afraid. So he turned aside into her tent, and she covered him with a rug. And he said to her, Please give me a little water to drink, for I am thirsty. So she opened a skin of milk, and gave him a drink, and covered him. And he said to her, Stand at the opening of the tent, and if any man comes and asks you, Is anyone here? Say no. The jail, the wife of Heber, took a tent peg and took a hammer in her hand. Then she went softly to him and drove the peg into his temple until it went into the ground while he was lying fast asleep from weariness. So he died. And behold, as Barak was pursuing Sisera, Jael went out to meet him and said to him, Come, and I will show you the man whom you are seeking. So he went into her tent, and there lay Sisera dead with the tent peg in his temple. So on that day, God subdued Jabin, the king of Canaan, before the people of Israel. And the hand of the people of Israel pressed harder and harder against Jabin, king of Canaan, until they destroyed Jabin, king of Canaan. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word that gives us all we need for life and godliness. We thank you for the Holy Spirit who opens our minds and our hearts to the truth that's found in your scripture. I pray that through the reading of the, and preaching of your word this morning, it would be pointed to Christ and ultimately to the work of redemption and your eternal covenant love for us. And may we be changed by these truths. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I mentioned a few weeks ago when I was preaching on, on Judges 2 how my Hebrew professor loved narrative sections of Scripture. Now I often use the analogy of, of a camera to get us to think about where the author was trying to, to point our direction of the action. And to focus on that and to read Scripture with that in mind. Well, the spotlight is quite obvious as the characters are introduced today. And we're introduced to one, and then they have an interaction with the next one, and then they come to another one, and they have an interaction with that one, and so forth. And that's actually a very linear sequence in which this passage takes place. The narrators, or, or the authors of these stories, want us to feel something about these characters that they had written about. Now, my professor, and this is a little bit silly, I'll admit it, and I felt silly doing it, would read certain narratives and certain sections from the Old Testament, and we had to give a thumbs up or a thumbs down as to what the character was doing. Sometimes he'd make us applaud that the character was doing something good or, or, or giving booze. To, it's the idea of the fact that the Hebrew society, the Israelites, as they were hearing these stories, it was an oral society. They weren't following along in a Bible. They were hearing this read. And so they were feeling something as they heard this read to them. And this was built in because of the good storytelling and the good writing that was there. 
And so he's trying to get us in the headspace of how the narrator constructed this particular story. It's exactly what Dan brought out last week with Egypt. They would have found great humor and irony in that story. Well, I'm not going to go so far as we're going to have to give thumbs up or thumbs down or anything this morning. But we are going to score the characters this morning. And that's what you have in your bulletin. It's a scorecard. Because two main themes drive this story. Faith and fear. And each of the four main characters that we'll encounter in the story differ in their comparisons and their scores of faith and fear. So the first character we come to is the nation of Israel. And we read the phrase that starts each cycle in, the, in Judges, in verse 1. And the people of Israel did again what was evil in the sight of the Lord. Now that statement would definitely earn a thumbs down or a boo if we were sitting in Hebrew class. Um, we're supposed to feel frustration from that. We're supposed to feel disappointment for the Israelites. Maybe even a bit of anger at the Israelites and their actions that they would forsake the covenant God and go after other gods. Now, let's be clear when God then sends them into punishment. But this isn't God being petty over something that they're, they're not doing. That it's one little minute aspect of the law that they're not keeping. They left worship, worshiping Yahweh, the Lord, the creator of heaven and earth, the one who brought them out of Egypt and made an everlasting covenant with them to bless them, to protect them, to give them a land, to provide for them in the land. And to shower his unconditional love upon them for the worship of idols made of wood and stone. Statues representing worth, worthless, false, and powerless gods. And God had promised to them that obedience to the covenant would bring blessing. And disobedience would bring a curse or bring a punishment. And the Israelites knew the consequences of their actions. But they chose to disobey God anyway. So how would we score Israel at this moment on faith? It'd be bad, right? Israel didn't have any faith at this point. The oppressor, the one that the Lord sent to test them in this case, is Jabin, king of Canaan, who reigned in Hazor. Now, why is that detail important? Well, because if we go back to Joshua 11, about 100 years earlier, we read how Joshua, early in the conquest of the land, had defeated Jabin, king of Canaan, at Hazor. So Jabin, from what people have studied, was kind of a generalized term used for the king of the Canaanites, like, like Pharaoh in Egypt or, or Caesar uh, in, in Rome. So just 100 years earlier, this very king, at this very location, a different king, but at the same dynasty, and that city had been defeated by Joshua. But since the Israelites were disobedient and didn't finish conquering the land, the Canaanites had a chance to regroup a chance to rebuild, and a chance to take back control of this stronghold. And then in verse 3, we see they cried out to the Lord for help because Jabin had a general named Sisera. And we're told that he had 900 chariots made of iron. And it says he cruelly oppressed the people of Israel for 20 years. Now this is the longest time yet that they had been under the control of a foreign king while they were in the promised land. And those words, cruelly oppressed, are only found when they're talking about the treatment of Pharaoh, of how he treated the Israelites when they were in Egypt. So the time of slavery is getting longer, and the treatment for Israel under these rulers is getting worse as we go through each cycle. So how is Israel doing in regards to their fear score? 
it's high. They have a lot of fear. No faith and a lot of fear. That's not looking like a very good score for Israel. And that's exactly what we don't want, is a faithless fear. Now, as a side note, it's easy in the book of Judges to, to sit back with our Bibles open and to criticize Israel and to say, this is the third cycle, and oh my goodness, can we believe these people are doing this again? Yep, they did what was evil in the sight of God again. But let's think about it. Aren't we at times like the Israelites? Yeah, we don't, we don't have statues and, and mythical gods that we worship that ride on storm clouds and bring rain and, and all that type of stuff. But be certain of this. We do have our idols. We most definitely have idols in our lives. Sports, money, popularity with the people around us, job, success, a politician or political party, the way we look, our possessions, the things we own, the abilities that God has given to us. Now, none of these things are necessarily bad by themselves. And many of these things are a gift from God to be worshipped, to be treasured. And we worship God for that. But far too often, we fail to see our own idol worship when we replace our worship for and love of God. We don't see ourselves in the place of the Israelites, that we have the idols just like they do. Now let's look at our second character, Deborah. We're told she's a prophetess, that she was judging Israel at that time, and that the people of Israel would come up to her for judgment. Now, this is something we certainly wouldn't expect in this story, if you're hearing this. And it's even a little bit shocking today that a woman is the voice of God for Israel. But the way that she, and there were those that would, had come before her, there were those that would come after her, but the way she's described is very unique. There's not another woman described like her in the entire Bible. The only other person described in this way, with Israel coming up to her for judgment, and seeking the voice of the Lord from her is Moses. Chapter 5 says that she became a mother in Israel. Now, a lot has been written about this situation. Some uh, want to point out that this means that the spiritual situation in Israel was, was so bad that there, a woman had to be used instead of any kind of man because there were no men available to serve God. Um, I'm not comfortable with that statement. It assumes quite a bit about the text. It's reading into it a bit too much to me. But what I am comfortable saying is that the Levites, the tribe that God had set apart to be priests, had failed in their duties of teaching God's law and of speaking to the people for and on the behalf of God. And as a result, God chose a person with incredibly high faith that was willing to be used by him to speak to his people. We also see that she didn't have any fear because of her high faith in God. And we'll look at more of that in just a moment. Now, <clears throat> my mom, a woman that I would consider a person of incredibly high faith, a wonderful woman, she sent me this quote from Charles Stanley about Deborah. And it says this, as we study the life of Deborah, we realize that it doesn't take a certain set of credentials to become an effective servant of God. There is only one requirement, and that is a heart that is willing to be used by him. The Lord uses the person who listens to him and obeys him. Deborah made herself available to God, and he gave her the ability to be victorious. And as we look at our text this morning, if we're going to have anyone as our model, 
of, of, on, on the scorecard of faith versus fear. Deborah is our model of that. High faith and no fear. So if Israel had a faithless fear, then Deborah had the opposite. She had a fearless faith. Now, I do want to say to all the ladies, and, and especially the young ladies that are out there this morning, never let anyone tell you that the fact that you are a woman stop you from being a powerful servant of God. There are so many ways that God can use you if you're listening to him and obedient to God. Our world needs more women and more young ladies like Deborah that have a fearless faith. Now we'll continue to look at Deborah, but she calls for our third character in the story, Barak. And you see the amount of authority and respect that she had in Israel as she sent for and summoned Barak to come to her. Presumably, he was already a leader of some kind if he had access for 10,000 guys to, when he said to follow him, that they would just get up and follow him. We see in verses 6 or 7 that God had already called Barak to go. And Deborah points this out to him. He told him to go. God had told him to gather his men. How many men he needed to gather? From what tribes? From Naphtali and Zebulun. He told him where he was supposed to go. And that God would defeat Sisera, this man with 900 iron chariots and all these other soldiers... Uh, and that Barak would be victorious in this situation. That the Lord would give Sisera into Barak's hand. Deborah in her role as a prophetess is confronting Barak with his facts. Basically saying, God's told you to do this. Why aren't you going and doing what God's already told you to do? Now, names mean a lot in the Old Testament times. And Barak's name means lightning. Right now, it's kind of a weak lightning. It's not a very strong lightning that we're looking at, especially for God's chosen deliverer of his people. It's also significant that his name meant lightning because the false god that the Canaanites worshipped, Baal, was pictured in, in, in cutouts of him that we still see on stone as the one that rode on storm clouds. And in one hand, he had a club that represented thunder. And in the other hand, he had a spear that represented lightning. But God was going to use his chosen person, Barak, his lightning, to deliver his people from this false god, Baal. The problem is that Barak starts out this story with a weak faith. He's already been summoned to Deborah to, for her to ask, and he asks her, to, for Deborah to ask, why haven't you done what God has told you to do? Then he makes the statement, if you go, I'll go. But if you don't go, I won't go. Now, there are very, very different opinions on this statement. Some writers say it shows how weak his faith was. All the way to the other extreme of others claiming that, well, he recognizes that Deborah is the presence of God. She's the prophetess in Israel. So why wouldn't he want the presence of God to go with him on this battle? I have a problem with that second opinion. I kind of lie somewhere more towards the lack of faith in that. For several reasons, three of them specifically. First, God had already commanded him and called him and told him to go fight before this interaction with Deborah. Second, you don't answer a clear command from God with a conditional statement of, if you do this, I will, but if you don't, then I won't. Third, Deborah's statement implies a change from what God had revealed that Sisera would be delivered into Barak's hand. But now, Barak would not get the full glory because God would deliver Sisera 
into the hand of a woman. So there was a change in that because of Barak's weak faith. So our, at the moment, our scorecard has Barak with a shaky faith and some fear. But yet we read in Hebrews 11, 32 through 34. And what more shall I say? For time would fail to tell me of Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, of David, and Samuel and the prophets, who through faith conquered kingdoms, enforced justice, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions, quenched the power of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, were made strong out of weakness, became mighty in war, and put foreign armies to fight. So we got to deal with the fact that in Hebrews 11, the faith chapter, and this hall of faith as it's often called, that Barak is listed as a model of faith. But look at the end of verse 34 again. We're made strong out of weakness. I would say Barak is most of us sitting in this room if we're to be honest with ourselves this morning. Weak faith, moderately scared. But as we read the rest of the chapter, and even as we get into chapter 5 when we do, we see that Barak grows in his faith. And as his faith in God grows, his fear starts to go away as well. So then we have the battle. It takes place exactly as God said that it would. Barak takes 10,000 men from the tribes of Zebulun and Naphtali, and they go up to Mount Tabor, and they're going to go down this mountain to try to surprise Sisera and all of his forces with his 900 iron chariots plus the other chariots that he has and all the other men. And they're hoping to surprise him. But word gets to Sisera from a spy of, of the movements that Barak and his men are making, and they gather, gather near the flatlands near this river, the Kishon River, just waiting for them to come out for battle. Then we get to verse 14 where Deborah says to Barak, Go, does not the Lord go before you? Now, we have to look through chapter 5 for some more details of the battle, but essentially the Hebrew word is, the Lord threw the army of Sisera into a confusion. It's not exactly sure what happened, but God went before and conquered the entire army of Sisera before a move was even made. It's even indicated that a storm was caused that caused flooding of the river so that the chariots were unmovable and unusable, and Sisera's army was defeated, except for Sisera, who got down from his chariot and ran on foot because he couldn't use his chariot. You can see another way that this is similar to the Exodus, where chariots are chasing the Israelites, and they become unusable because they were underwater. We now meet our fourth character, a very interesting one, Jael. We have the seemingly unimportant verse in this description in verse 11 about a man named Heber, who was a Kenite that had settled further away from the rest of his tribe, and they were descendants of the father-in-law of Moses. Sisera, realizing that his army was going to be defeated, ran away on foot, on foot and came to the tents in the dwelling place of this man named Heber. And since there was peace between Heber and Jabin, the king of Canaan, he felt relatively safe running to this area. Now, Jael sees Sisera and goes out to meet him and diverts Sisera into her tent with insistent yet calming words to him. As he goes into her tent, he tells her to lie down covers him up with a rug, tells him to rest. He asks for water, and she gives him milk instead. And, he, and she even agreed to stand at the door of the tent and turn away anyone that came by and asked about it. Once Sisera was asleep, she took a tent peg and put it through the temple of his head, killing him. And as Barak had been chasing down Sisera, she came out in, in the, kind of the same manner and said, come with me and I'll show you the man that you're looking for. 
So Deborah's word from God, that God was going to give Sisera into the hands of a woman instead of Barak, had come true. Now, one of the interesting things about this time period is that women were the ones that were usually responsible for, for setting up and taking down tents. And I like what Tim Keller said about this, is that Sisera was essentially killed with an everyday household appliance by a woman. So if we score jail, we see that she is fearless. But what of her faith? We're not really told about that. Did she worship Yahweh? Did she sympathize with the Israelites? Did she feel some kind of kinship with her descendants? Was this for her own safety? Or was she picking the winning side based on how she kind of saw the battle going, knowing that King Jabin was about to fall? But we looked at chapter 5 where the angel of the Lord says, Blessed be Jael among women. Then it lists some of the atrocities that Sisera had and his men had committed of the women in that area. I think at best we can put a question mark by her faith. We're not quite sure where she stood on her faith. She certainly was fearless. But we do know that she was a woman, the instrument of the Lord, that God had chosen to kill Sisera and take the glory away from Barak. And it's certainly true that one can be fearless but not have any faith. My wife and I were uh, in Wyoming a couple weeks ago, and um, we went to a rodeo and saw quite a few men get on the back of, uh, of bulls. And I would say these men are fearless, but probably a, a lot of them, not quite a high degree. So fearlessness does not always necessarily go with faith. Sometimes it goes with Maybe just stupidity. I don't know. Um, they could beat me up, so I wouldn't say that to their face. But I read a commentary, though, that said that Jael ended up being the hero of this story. However, I would argue that that statement is completely untrue. God is the hero of this story, just as God is the hero of the book of Judges. The Lord went before Barak and routed and confused Sisera's army making his, the equivalent of that time, tanks completely unusable. Sisera's death played out at the hands of a woman according to the word of the Lord and his plan and direction. Deborah was the servant of the Lord who confronted a weak deliverer. Barak started flawed with weak faith, yet the glory of the battle wasn't his because of that. Jael was fearless, but we're not quite sure about her faith from this text. And I will say this, as we continue in the study of the book of Judges, if we start to look at the Judges as ones that are heroes, the things that we need to copy or pattern our lives after, we're going to be sorely disappointed every single time. But if we see God as the hero, working all things behind the scenes, in spite of a completely unfaithful people, Israelites, and see the flawed Judges and deliverers that he raises up for them, then we will see what the author truly wants us to see. Now, too often, this particular story ends with a tent peg, but we miss the greater victory of the continued fight against Jabin until he is fully defeated in verses 23 and 24. I think we reconcile Barak's weak faith in the beginning with his mention in Hebrews 11. The fight wasn't over until Sisera's death. They had to continue fighting to defeat the king, and they continued until it was done under the direction of Barak, who was made strong out of weakness, as he became mighty in war and put armies to flight, as it says in Hebrews 11. So what is the challenge for us this morning? Our goal 
is to have a fearless faith. That's easy to say, but how do we do that? Well, I think we need to kind of reverse what happened in the lives of the Israelites. First of all, we need to put aside the idols that are in our life and repent and turn back to God. If we're trusting in anything in God for our security, for our assurance, for anything else, we will always have a weak faith. Second, we need to believe God. We need to believe his word, what he says. And we're primarily able to do this through the word of God. In it, we see God's character, his promises, his covenants. We see God's plans. We see his sovereign rule over everything. We see how he's worked in the past to give us confidence in his working in the present. Our time in prayer versus the time we spend about worrying things or trying to figure out situations is a good indicator of how much we believe God. Now, Labor Day is tomorrow, and it always makes me think of Matthew eleven twenty eight, 28, where Christ says, Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. And perhaps one of the reasons we're so unsettled, not just as a society, but as a church, one of the reasons we're unsettled as a people of God is that we aren't coming to God because we don't believe God. Third, we need to love God. And how do we love God? Well, Christ said in John 14, if you love me, keep my commandments. So we show God by being obedient and by doing what he says. And then finally, we rejoice and we rest in the grace of God. Now we look at Deborah and Barak today, but God is the hero of the book of Judges. The Israelites did nothing worthy of God sending them a deliverer. But out of his immeasurable grace and his love for his people, he did. And we can rejoice and rest that we have the perfect deliverer, who is our prophet, our priest, and our king, who's currently sitting at the right hand of the Father, awaiting his glorious second coming. And we have a hope that now, no matter how bleak things may look in your life, when you look around at the news, or you look at your life, or you look at your bills, or whatever else, no matter how bleak things may appear, we have an eternal victory through our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. So we must keep our eyes fixed on him. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you indeed go before us. We thank you for your word that does not fail. We thank you for your promises that are sure and are certain. We thank you for your everlasting covenant of which we have been made a part through Jesus Christ and his death and resurrection. I pray that you'd be with us as we strengthen our faith in you and that we would go out and do great things for you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.